This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, here on Fight Back, we check in with Toronto Mayor John Tory periodically, and that is how we begin today. Mayor Tory, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. Um, so, first of all, uh, the city has 10 nursing homes that it runs, and uh, of course, the province has decided to call in the military to help with some of the provincial ones. Uh, you've, you've deemed that that's not necessary, right? Well, what I've said is it was unlikely that our 10 uh, would be on that list because uh, we have the uh, uh, the good fortune to have uh, resources available to us, for example, public health nurses that work for our public health department, some of which we have reassigned to those uh, long-term care residences. Uh, we also have uh, a very large public service, and we've asked them to voluntarily redeploy themselves, uh, and we have a system for doing that, and quite a few of them have actually volunteered to go uh, to the long-term care residences, where what they can do is they can handle a a lot of this sort of administrative work of the people there and allow some of the staff that work there all the time, the trained, the highly trained staff to, you know, focus on the residents. So I think we're in a reasonable place in terms of that kind of extra staff uh, that might come from the armed forces. And I'm not, I don't think that the province had in mind uh, one of the city of Toronto owned uh, residences when they said there were going to be five. I don't, when we haven't asked for it either. Um, and uh, how many of those 10 have outbreaks? Uh, I'm just trying to remember now. I think it, it's it's several. And of course, one of them, for example, Seven Oaks, and not to single them out, but they had a particularly, um, you know, a, a very uh, tragic loss of life there. Um, and so a number of them have had outbreaks and we have instituted a number of measures. We were, for example, ahead of the province in basically saying to all the people that worked in our city-owned long-term care residences that they had to decide either they worked for us only and didn't work anywhere else, or uh, they would be asked to not come to work. Uh, and so we put that into place uh, a week before the province did and uh, began the process of trying to make sure that the people who came to our long-term care residences were only uh, people who worked there all the time and didn't work in other places. And by the way, I, I'm not blaming them for working in other places. In some cases, they had to do that to earn a living. But um, we tried to give them extra hours, and, and uh, we do pay, I think, a little more uh, as a city uh, when we own these. And so that was uh, put us in a position where we felt, uh, you know, clear of conscience in asking them to commit themselves to us only so that we would not have people coming and going uh, from our residences. Yeah. yeah, uh, Speaking of that, you know, despite the provinces and top up from the federal government that's going through the provincial government, uh, those personal support workers who had to give up some of their work, uh, as far as I know, they still have not received word about their top up. No, and you know, uh, I, I remember not during a pandemic, but I remember my father-in-law was in uh, long-term care a number of years ago. He had Alzheimer's, and you know, the degree to which those people take take such tender, loving, and professional care 
uh, of uh, the people that are uh, their their patients, as it were, their residents, is extraordinary. Um, it's extraordinary every day, but it's especially extraordinary now when you have the added element of uh, the isolation that some people are forced to undergo, uh, you know, and all the different things that are going on because of the virus. And so I think, um, you know, while you don't like to impose conditions on their lives, it also was a fundamental factor in the spreading of the virus was people coming and going. And I'm not, again, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying the reality was that they had to come and go from work. Um, and in many cases, they were working in more than one place. And this uh, contributed to the spread of the virus. That plus the fact that we weren't for the longest of times doing, uh, you know, an adequate amount of testing in those uh, in those places, which we're now doing. Uh, so you're saying that your workers, they all have full-time hours or? What? Well, they've been, they've been offered uh, full-time hours uh, in order to then cause them to have to commit to work for us only. Uh, so we basically said, you know, we, we're going to give you that choice, um, which is that you, you know, come and have extra hours and work for us. Or if you weren't prepared to commit, you're going to work only for us that we have to ask you not to come to work for us for the time being. Um, and that was our way of trying to, uh, you know, make sure we had people that were consistent and came only to us and didn't work in multiple places. And we started that uh, well before the province uh, had the effective date of their order uh, that really requires the same thing. The terrible situation in our long-term care homes is is basically forcing us as a society to look at what goes on there and how we treat our elders. And, and the premier has hinted that there are going to have to be changes after this is all over in terms of staffing and, and just how these places run, do you think the same is true for your city-run residences? Well, of course, we operate the city-run uh, you know, long-term care residences under the provincial rules. Um, I would say, and I'm not being critical of anybody else, but I would just say that we operate to a standard in terms of staffing, levels of pay, uh, and the general uh, kind of manner in which these places are run at the gold standard. Uh, and we've had our problems during the virus, as has probably every long-term care residence in, in many cases around the world. But we operate at a very high standard, and I think we've been commended for that over time. But I think what he's talking about is more system-wide uh, you know, rule changes. And, and I think it is high time that that was examined. And I think the other thing that's a reality, and I know this from my days as a provincial politician, mostly outside Toronto, there are many, many of these long-term care residences that were built a long time ago and are the only one in town, as it were, in a smaller place than Toronto. And they still have many people in double rooms and bigger. And of course, that is something that really you don't build the new ones with that in mind, that kind of configuration, because it's a like a ready-made prescription for uh, contagious uh, things to spread. And so... Um, I think that's another thing we're going to have to take a look at because what they've said is they're going to replace all the ones. I think they call them like C and D, uh, you know, category long-term care residences, and they're older and they're uh, having a lot of people in a room, multiple people in a room, and they're trying to get rid of all that and replace all those. But they, I think they're going to have to speed that up because this has proven that a lot of those places, uh, you know, even including some that we own, are are configured physically in a way that may be out of date in the context of uh, some of these pandemics. Uh, I'd like to turn now to another communal setting, and that is shelters where the virus is spreading. And I'm looking out the window at a shelter, which is just down the street here. And often uh, there are very large groups of people in a very unsafe way out there. And I've asked the police about it. There are lots of police in this neighborhood. And uh, basically they admitted that the enforcement uh, for, uh, you know, People in the community and people over there are two very different things, and they might send an officer who knows them to try to talk to them. But, but you know, we see very large 
uh, you know, congregations of people who seem to be, you know, just milling around or partying or whatever. And, and um, it doesn't seem like that's being enforced. Well, yeah, that's the more difficult part of it. I mean, the part we've been focused on, and you might be critical of this, but we've been focused on some of the uh, challenges we had inside those respites and shelters where um, we had set things up in such a way, I'll call it in peacetime before COVID-19 broke out, uh, that people were spaced uh, even in the beds they slept in more than uh, or, or much, much less than uh, five feet apart, uh, six feet apart, I guess it is, two meters. And so we've had to take dramatic action. When I say dramatic, I mean, we've already moved. We literally have had to physically move. And, we, and it isn't just a matter of handing somebody a presto a card and saying, here, show up at this place. It's your new shelter. Uh, we've had to assess each one because a lot of them have mental illness and other kinds of issues in their lives besides being homeless. And so we've literally moved already 1,200 people so as to, in effect, create more space by moving them out of some of the existing shelters so that the beds can be moved further apart. So we've been focused on that. Um, and uh, th- there may well have been uh, some problems during the pandemic with what goes on outside of those shelters. And I haven't had that recently brought to my attention, but I will say we've been focused on the activity that I was describing, which is moving literally thousands of these clients from where they are, where they might be too close together, to somewhere else. Um, And at the same time, carrying on a lot of testing with that population to make sure that we know uh, who's carrying the virus and who isn't. So we've been very, very busy. And I will just say to you, there has been no group of people or there are no groups of people um, beyond the elderly, uh, the homeless and the more vulnerable population who've taken up more of our time. And I think when the book is written about this, or the report, because there will be one, I'm sure, uh, it will show that while not perfect, our treatment of the vulnerable populations uh, has been uh, at the very top of the class in terms of what people would expect. Right. But I, I'm, I'm talking about the rest of us who feel unsafe when you see large groups of people sort of just across the way. Are you going to try to enforce that a little more well, tightly? Uh, well, I'm certainly, now that you've brought it to my attention, uh, you know, no one has mentioned it in the context of uh, the reports that I get all the time, but I will ask about it um, in the context of the one that I know is near the uh, Zoomer studios uh, and see. I, I, but I'll get a report on all of these uh, sites. Uh, one of the problems is some of the, the daytime uh, drop-in centers were closed. We reopened some of them uh, so that people would have a place to go during the day. I'll check and see uh, what the account is. You obviously told me there's a problem at the one you're referring to in that area, but I will check and see. And I I certainly, um, you know, I'm not going to say we won't enforce these things, but, you know, it's like every law. Um, There are not enough bylaw and police officers to enforce every law everywhere all the time. I mean, that's just a reality. And so, uh, you know, and we have government resources to dedicate to different kinds of tasks. And I have said to you in all honesty that uh, the, the biggest challenge we face with respect to the homeless population is the challenge of moving literally thousands of them from one place to another. And that is a big task. It's an important task. It has to do with the spread or not spread of the virus. And so I, you know, I have to sort of keep my eye on the ball in terms of what it is we're doing um, of that scale of magnitude. But I'll look into the uh, situation outside of these shelters and see what I find out. Okay, good. Um, City is losing, I think, $65 million a week. You've talked about a plan offering city staff, I believe there are around 35,000 city staff, uh, either to be redeployed if they can't do their jobs 
remotely uh, or to go on the emergency benefit. Uh, how is that going? How many um, people have taken you up? And It's what's... going well. What we did was uh, we had already deployed about 500 city staff to different places like the shelters and like the uh, long-term care and other places like that. And so there, there was a total out of that grand total of, say, 35,000. There were 3,000 employees who um, did, couldn't do their jobs from home effectively. And so we said to them, uh, look, we are going to give you a choice of agreeing to be redeployed. Um, and if you don't agree to be redeployed, then we are going to put you uh, um, on an emergency leave, which meant they would get unemployment insurance only, not topped up. Uh, so they get unemployment insurance. If uh, they agreed to be redeployed and were redeployed, they would stay on full pay because they're working and doing a different job. If they agreed to be redeployed and we didn't have room for them, in other words, we didn't need them, they would then get uh uh, the emergency benefit from employment insurance plus a top-up to take them to 75% of their uh, wages. So we had three different categories in effect. And I'll just tell you that so far, when we sent out a survey to the, I guess, 2,500 or so that were the ones eligible for this redeployment, a good many of them said, yes, they would redeploy. Very few said they would not. Um, and now we're into the task of saying, okay, if uh, Libby has agreed to be redeployed, do we redeploy her to uh, the 311 call center or to a long-term care or to uh, you know, uh, the parks department, and we're just going through that process right now. Okay. Uh, but again, the city is obviously facing a big hole. Legally, you're not allowed to run a deficit. Uh, what's going to happen afterwards? Are, are you trying to get that law changed or tax hikes no, or what? No, actually, I, I am not trying to get the law changed saying we cannot run a deficit because I think you're better off not running a deficit. Uh, I think the discipline of us having a balanced budget each year is a good discipline, and I think we've managed to achieve it in my uh, six years and six budgets as mayor. Um, and so what we are trying to do is get the other governments, and there's a doc document out today from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities saying that our combined ask as cities across the country is between 10 and $15 billion. And when you put that into perspective, when you mentioned uh, $65 million a week, uh, you know, if you take that out for, say, a period of three months of the lockdown, which we're in now, and then maybe another six months of recovery time when the different the things are coming back slowly, that gets you to $1.5 billion for this year. So when you hear us asking for 10 to $15 billion for cities across the country, $1.5 billion of that um, is earmarked for Toronto, uh, and we hope to get other support from the provincial government as well, because these are operating funds. We can't run a deficit. We can't borrow uh, to uh, uh, to get those monies back, uh, and it's one of those things where when you've lost the money from TZC fares not being uh, put in the, uh, you know, spent uh, uh, during the pandemic, you can't get it back. I mean, those riders are not going to ride the train twice as often when we open the city up, so we've lost that money, and we need those other governments to help us out. And that's uh, going to put us in a position, Toronto, which is the economic engine of the country, where we can come out to a good, solid, I hope, quick uh, recovery. It'll be phased, I'm sure, when it starts, but but it'll be quick, I hope, in terms of the level of economic activity, and that will help the rest of the country uh, to be strong because Toronto represents, uh, you know, almost uh, 20% of the country's entire economic output. A, a fi final question, though. I mean, at the end of the day, there's one taxpayer, and whatever level of government, uh, you know, uh, pays. What do you say to taxpayers who are worried? I would say to them, 
that they should be a lot more worried if all the businesses close up. I mean, what is the money being spent on that's being spent right now? It's being spent to put some money into the pockets of people who became suddenly unemployed, not because their business turned down, but because the government actually ordered those businesses closed to preserve health. I would say the money is being spent on helping businesses. And if all those businesses don't survive the pandemic, then there'll be no jobs for people to go back to. And so our financial and economic problems will be way worse if we didn't take this action as governments generally, federal, provincial, and municipal, to help people and to help companies. Uh, And if they don't help municipalities, we'll simply be in a position where we would have to either dramatically cut services, like childcare, like transit, like police, like fire, um, and dramatically cut those services, or raise taxes by like 25 or 30% or more than that. And so I think people understand that the federal government is the one best positioned to borrow this money at the lowest cost around the world, because it is a government of a a very healthy, sovereign nation. Um, You know, our debt to GDP, debt to, to the size of the economy ratio right now is the healthiest of all the big countries. And it will, even after this expenditure, still be the healthiest of all big countries. Not that we shouldn't work to get the debt uh, levels down. But I think people understand this is the time we must make those investments in order to have the economy in one piece so that when we come out of this pandemic, uh, we'll be able to you know, function in a way that we can get back to normal. That won't take us to normal, but it'll take us to a good start. And I think everybody understands that, and they know it's a special time, unprecedented circumstance, and that this is the right thing to do. And I support what Mr. Trudeau is doing. It's a lot of money, but it's going directly into the pockets of people, students, small businesses, individuals who've been unemployed. That's, I think, the people that need help right now. Okay. Mayor Tory, thank you so much for the update. Talk again soon. All right. Talk soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.